0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Hailing Frequencies Open. My name is Carrie. I will be your host tonight, and I'm joined by Mel and David.
1: Hi.
0: We are in the home stretch of the season one. So this episode that we yay be- <laughs> yay that would be so happy. This episode that we will be reviewing for you tonight, "The City on the Edge of Forever." Directed by Joseph Pevney, writers Harlan Ellison, and Gene Roddenberry. So before we actually dive into this episode, David is going to lay some knowledge on you. Go ahead, David.
2: I've got all the knowledge. No, I'm just kidding. So some pre-production stuff here. Uh, so this episode took 10 months to write.
0: <laughs>
2: oh my. Harlan Ellison's original pitch to the final rewrite, which was done by Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana. The changes have also been uh, attributed to uh, Gene Coons, who was a producer. It ha- also led to a permanent rift between Harlan Ellison and Gene Roddenberry for the rest of Roddenberry's life, in particular over a claim that re- by Roddenberry that Ellison had Scotty dealing drugs in one issue of the script.
1: Hi, not Scotty!
2: <laughs> That's never been confirmed as far as that goes. The episode also was more than $50,000 over budget when it was filmed.
0: Holy shit. That wasn't because they got Joan Collins, right? No. Or was that just other stuff?
2: <laughs> Joan Collins was unknown at this point. Oh. Also, there were mistakes done with the set design uh, because in... Ellison's original script. He described the city with uh, on the edge of forever with ruins. What he meant was Norse ruins, but the set designer made it ruins. Their normal set designer wasn't there that day, so when he came in, he was very just dispri- surprised to see a ruined city set instead of a set that had runes on them. So. There were a lot of issues beforehand. One of the other major issues is, so Harlan Ellison was one of the first writers that Roddenberry picked because he wanted to have the best science fiction writers produce scripts for this show that were available. Ellison was the best there was at that time. Um, He'd just been nominated for an outstanding script of a television anthology for his script from the Outer Limits for the episode called Demon with a Glass Hand. I've not seen this episode. But he did win, and other than most writers who were assigned pre-written premises, he was allowed to develop and propose his own outline. He was inspired reading a biography of an evangelist, Amy Semple McPherson, and he thought the most interesting idea was to have Kirk travel back in time, fall in love with a similar woman of good intent, but she had to die in order to preserve the future. He considered it would have a very heart-rendering effect on Kirk. Now, that part stayed. That part aspect stayed in the episode, obviously. But that was the original idea that he ran with. In March 1966, he pitched this idea to Roddenberry, who loved it. A week later, he turned in his first script. Uh, One of the other producers thought it was brilliant. Ellison didn't have any restrictions because they hadn't written the series Bible yet. So he could do whatever he wanted. The first version included a Lieutenant Richard Beckworth, who is sentenced to death after he kills a fellow crew member when he is threatened with the exposure of his involvement in the illegal drug trade. He in- included this element since he expected the starship to be like any other unit, having at least some unlawful people in it. Makes sense in a certain, certain way, especially in the early days of Star Trek when you're still not really sure what this is. Beckworth is then escorted to the surface of a nearby planet alongside Kirk with Spock to carry out the execution by firing squad. <laughs> so they, yeah. A firing uh, because of pl-
0: squad? Like yeah. with phasers?
2: Yeah. Okay. Because of the planet's atmosphere, they would have to wear environmental suits when they arrived, they find an ancient civilization and the remains of a city. This was his original idea for the city on the edge of forever. It was originally intended to be inhabited by several nine-foot tall men. Okay. And they were originally the guardians of forever.
0: Oh, not the thing, not the portal. not
2: not, Not the portal. It was originally them. And they were protecting the ancient time machine that was the portal.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: Kirk then asks them to see the history of the United States. Um, When it reaches the Great Depression, Beckworth dives into the projection and vanishes. The Guardians then tell Kirk the history has been altered and upon returning to Enterprise, they discover the vessel is now manned by renegades. Oh. They have to then fight their way back to the transporter room, return to the planet where the Guardians allow Kirk and Spock to pursue Beckworth into the past. The Guardians specifically tell them what Beckworth did that changed history which is he prevented the death of Edith Costler, And in the final version, Kirk falls in love with her. In this version, however, he does so knowing, in the original version, he did so knowing that she had to die at the end.
0: Okay. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. He cannot stop Beckworth from attempting to save Costler. Spock has to do it. Or, Roddenberry had asked for the ship specifically to be placed in danger. And so Ellison added the renegade element because that's what he wanted. Roddenberry didn't like this. Um, he thought that Kirk's actions in the first draft weren't. He didn't really like his actions, so he asked him to rewrite it without pay. Um, the redraft took five weeks.
0: So he was not getting paid to rewrite this script for five weeks. Right. Nope.
3: Well, and then um, here's the thing: if I was being paid, I would do five weeks too, because I would just do it whenever.
2: After which, Roddenberry gave more notes. Harlan took two more weeks to respond. There were still at this point plans to film the episode in the first half of the season, as at this point, the version included Yeoman Rand.
0: But she had been fired.
2: Not if they'd filmed it in the first half of the season.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Everything's Um, out of order.
2: So then a version was received on May 13th. Roddenberry at the executives at... Desilu and NBC, they were all really happy. They'd been concerned about the amount of time taken. All scripts were being pitched, written, approved, and the the time taken for Harlan to revise. The the newest version dropped the environmental suits because they were too expensive and rewrote the information given to Kirk by the Guardians, making it more general and less Earth-specific. It also changed Edith's surname to Keeler. However, the majority of the plot points were unchanged. The producers immediately registered concern over the potential cost of the attempt to film this treatment. Specifically, they were concerned about the time portal effect, a scene involving a mammoth and a number of exterior and night shots that were required. Despite all that, Roddenberry asked Harlan to turn it into a shooting script and set aside a desk for him in the assistant director's room, expecting him to attend the office every day until he finished. Uh, He ended up in an office of his own at his request, but disliked it that he spent the majority of time on set. There's all sorts of delays. Harlan completed the first teleplay in three weeks, handing it in on June 7th. There's a whole lot going on here. It took forever for this because there's more notes than I can possibly go over. At one point, the producers all loved, basically the way that it breaks down is the producers all loved his scripts, but they felt it was unfilmable. Oh. Because he took a lot of risks, he did a lot of stuff, but they couldn't do anything with it. However, William Shatner was a huge fan of Harlan, and so he tried to keep everybody on the same page. At one point, he went to his house to try and get him to reconcile with Roddenberry to help get everything. According to Shatner, uh, Harlan yelled at him and threw him off the property. Oh no! Uh, Harlan has not said one way or the other what actually happened. So Harlan
3: is not with your person.
2: And Harlan says that Shatner had a personal interest in having the script revised because at that time, Spock had more lines than him. That does sound like a very Shatner thing to do. So at this point, one of the producers asked one of the story editors to fix the script because originally mccoy was not going to be the victim of the overdose it was going to be somebody else because harlan didn't like it because if mccoy is supposed to be this great doctor he's not accidentally going to stab himself with a vial full of medicine he's not wrong
3: uh hold that thought david because we know that dr leonard bones McCoy is not a great doctor, and if this overdose is going to happen to any doctor, any Starfleet doctor in any series, including DS9, where the doctor was a hologram, it would be Voyager. Dr. Leonard, I'm sorry, Voyagers.
0: <laughs> That's okay.
3: Sorry. You said, I'm "Yeah."
1: Right. I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> it would put be it past
0: Bashir, but. <laughs>
3: I mean, well, it would be Dr. Leonard McCoy, and I get it, Harlan didn't know what was happening on other episodes, He had no show to watch for him, the informed of the stupidity of the doctor, going on what he was told, but in the end, we all know the truth, and it um, was quite of mccoy to stab himself and give himself
2: he's an idiot <laughs> and that all makes sense furthermore there was another story editor replacement uh, that's when dc fontana came in she was originally roddenberry's secretary and was well aware of the script's problems from reading previous versions uh, her first day of work roddenberry gave her a copy of the versions and told her to rewrite it all right uh, she said it was terrible among the changes in her version were the introduction of the drug Cortisine. harlan didn't like it as his most recent version of the script called for an alien creature venom to cause the symptoms in mccoy he said that gene roddenberry preferred having an accomplished surgeon act in such a boneheaded manner that he injects himself with a deadly drug i mean at this point with no episodes i understand as mel pointed out why he's upset about this however everybody loved fontana's version um saying it was the version that was most likely to get shot the criticism then was that the beauty and mystery in the screenplay it was originally written were gone. So they rewrote it again, and then a third time, with Ron Bear rewriting it for February 1st the following year. It was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> Harlan was angry enough because he wanted to be credited on the script only, but not under his name. Roddenberry threatened to have him blacklisted the he eventually was convinced to accept credit by name nobody else who rewrote it sought credit since they all agreed it was more important for Star Trek to be associated with Harlan Ellison than it was for them to get credit on this episode
0: okay so in the final draft who actually wrote it
2: Gene Roddenberry
0: okay
2: I
3: I would like to point out that um Gene Roddenberry wanted an idiot on purpose that wasn't a mistake McCoy was supposed to be stupid so I feel vindicated thank you very much
2: but yeah so there was a whole like and this led to Harlan because originally the idea was is that Harlan was going to write more episodes but because of this that did not happen To the point of, like, the 70s, he told people before the next Star Trek movie came out that Star Trek was a dead idea. I'm going to paraphrase here. As long as Gene was involved, it was never going to go anywhere. Because he felt that Gene was too wrapped up in taking all the credit and doing all the things. And so it just created this huge issue. As far as casting goes... Everybody was shocked that Joan Collins was interested in appearing in the series. Why? From NBC all the way down. Her agent asked if she wanted to appear on the show. Collins had never heard of it. Uh, She talked to her children. Her oldest daughter was really enthusiastic about the show. And at that point, Collins decided to do it.
0: (laughs) Just ask the kids. (laughs)
1: That's sweet. So
2: she enjoyed, and apparently she enjoyed working on the show. William and Leonard were both very nice to her. One thing that has created a problem, though, is Collins in later interviews has said that this character was a Nazi sympathizer, Uh, which is an error that's been repeated in multiple biographies. However, it is not true.
0: No. No, it's not. Like, she was all about her character. It was all about peace.
2: There was a whole thing... So, normally episodes take six days to film. The shoot was completed uh, in eight days. It cost $245,316.
0: Well, that's a very accurate number.
2: <laughs> An, a normal budget for episodes during the first season was
1: 185000 Okay. Yeah. I can see yeah. that.
2: They shot it on location, they used Lucia Ball and Desi Arnaz's. Studio plot to film at. So they saved a little money there. But yeah, there's all sorts of issues. They also didn't compose any new music for this. This is all read on music from previous episodes. It has been said by various people that later, looking back on it, Gene wished that they'd had the budget to actually do l- new music for more episodes than actually happened.
0: But yeah,
2: that's interesting. That's the. High drama of it all.
0: Uh, clearly. my goodness.
2: Well, and Harlan never forgave Roddenberry. They've sued each other a few times. Oh, no. Harlan also says he never was received more than a pittance, his words, from working on the episode. He said, Every thug and studio putts and semi-literate bandwagon jumper and merchandiser has grown fat as a maggot in a corpse off what I created.
0: Uh damn those are some angry words
2: uh yeah in 2009 he went so far as he sued cbs uh seeking 25 percent of net receipts for merchandising publishing and other income from the episode since 1967 he also sued the writers guild of america for repeatedly failing to act on his behalf in a press statement he said it ain't about the principle it's about the money pay me i'm doing it for the 34 five year long disrespect and the money on october 22nd of that year the lawsuit was settled with harlan claiming he was satisfied with the outcome so they did pay him which to me tells me that cbs was very well aware that they probably were in the wrong Mm -hmm. because if not they would have let it go to court but they didn't
0: he worked so hard on it and then got such shit about it
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you want you want that recognition that, like, this was my work and I need to be paid for it. So, I mean, oh, I...
3: I respect the fact he was straight up like, no, no, no. I want my money. Yeah. No, no, no. Give me money. Uh, this is not the principle. I'm not trying to stand up my bank account. Give me my money. Yeah. A lot of people aren't that blunt and they try no. to skirt around the issue. Sometimes you just have to say, give
1: me my
2: money and I'm gonna give Harlan Ellison a lot of credit here he has been associated with a number of harder edge sci-fi such as like Outer Limits he was in both versions of the Outer Limits he did the Outer Limits in the 60s and then he came back when they rebooted it in the late 90s and was story editor and wrote several stories for that series as well he was also involved with Babylon 5 he was involved from the jump as a basically as a producer but very hands-on he only actually wrote like two episodes of Babylon 5 but he was he was credited on every episode but yeah he he did a lot his novels are really good his stories are really good but he is notoriously prickly unfortunately there's very little information as far as from Gene's standpoint what things where things stood However, it is also well documented that Jean is very prickly, so it probably, some of it was probably just two very prickly people who couldn't get along. Since then, The Guardian of Forever has appeared in multiple Star Trek novels, most famously, uh, I think, in the 1992 novel In Mzadi by Peter David, where it was Will Riker who went back in time using The Guardian to try and save Deanna Troi's life. I've read that book. It's very, very good. If you've never had a chance to read it, please do so. Yeah, he he appeared in a whole bunch of other books. One thing that that book covers that nothing else did, especially this show, is that uh, the planet is now restricted. Like, no one's allowed to go there except for scientists. So there's a science team that's stationed there all the time doing research and science stuff. But other than that, they switch out every six months because the planet is so desolate and so windswept that they go mad. So they try and cycle them out quickly. But yeah. That is what I know.
0: Well, that was a lot. <laughs> but very interesting. That
3: was a lot. But it was good.
0: Yeah. Was a lot. It's sometimes you just never know. With certain episodes, you're like, oh, as a fan, like, oh, that's such a great episode. And then Not a lot of people uh, delve into how it was made and everything that went on. Poor Harlan. Man. All right. So switching gears. Now we're going to dive right into the episode. The City on the Edge of Forever. Final cut. (laughs) All right, so we are on board the Enterprise, yet again, the bridge. Everyone seems to be on the bridge. Scotty's there, Uhura, of course, Sulu at the helm, Kirk and Spock, of course, because they're always there. And they seem to be trying to survey a planet that they are having some kind of moment where the ship is shaking around and they don't know exactly why, and then all of a sudden, Boom! Sulu gets sort of blown up and flies out of his seat and gets injured. And Kirk calls for McCoy to get his ass up to the bridge. And turns out they were passing, the Enterprise was passing through ripples in time, according to Spock. And apparently on the planet, someone or something is causing it. Of course, they gotta find out why. But first, we must fix Sulu. McCoy scans Sulu and says that he has a heart flutter, which I'm not sure exactly what that means and how serious that is, but with the look on McCoy's face, it's
2: pretty serious. Well, no, it means that Sulu's in love.
0: Aww.
2: Especially based off of what happens after McCoy injects him with the drug. I know. Because Sulu, when his head pops up, he looks at, at Will Shatner like, hey, what are you doing later? Oh, my
0: God. It's true. Oh, that look. Yeah, so McCoy risks just a few drops, like two. Just two drops of the cordyacine, fixes Sulu right up, and then we get that beautiful, oh, I'm alive. And in love hello <laughs> oh my kind of thing from sulu i guess kirk knows something about this drug and he's like oh um you want to be careful with that um, should you risk using that because all these things could happen and you know sulu's fine because if it's a controlled dose the doctor should know the exact dosage to give right
2: i do love that mccoy checks him
0: i do love that yes He's like, you were about- Where he's like,
2: <laughs> I'm s- <laughs> I'm sorry, were you going to give a medical opinion? And I'm just like, yeah, normally I don't, I'm with Mel, that McCoy is kind of useless, but in this particular moment I'm kind of with him. Uh-huh. Yeah! McCoy's at least had some training. Kirk's training is how quickly can I take that woman's clothes off? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I would have take McCoy too, everybody uh, so should have shot up in a seat and been like are you sure you're giving me the right dose and then passed back out
2: <laughs>
0: mccoy can't <laughs> no no
2: i mean it's true but also kirk shouldn't be giving medical opinions or,
0: or love advice
2: Because the other person on the ship that I'm not interested in taking medical opinions from is him.
0: Truth. And this is like all the first like few minutes of the episode too. It is hilarious.
2: Also can we talk about Kirk being a dick to Uhura for no reason? Like why did that happen?
0: Because he does that. He does that. It's, It's like what? Three episodes now that he's been doing that?
3: Yeah. He's just...
0: I don't know. David, your job? Next episode. Research if there's a reason why in the scripts that he's being a dick to Uhura.
2: I mean, I don't think I have to research it. It's because Uhura said no.
0: <laughs> As she should.
2: Jesus. And I don't mean that to be like taken wrongly, but the way that they portray Kirk in this series, that's kind of the way that it comes off, is the women that he doesn't have a chance with, or he's not interested in he's not nice to them
0: that's very true and yeah. that was very evident in the space seed episode
2: yeah because as but- soon as he found out that all she wanted was Spock, he immediately for lack of a better term just mistreated her for the rest of the episode she did he did not care
0: yeah yeah it's like you do not have a shot in hell with miss uhura so i don't know get over it Moving on, though. So the ship gets knocked around toddler, again. And he's acting like a toddler. Kirk? Yeah, he is. He definitely is.
2: I'm this mini. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like this mini. Oh, that's
2: terrible. There's only one other thing from this beginning part that I want to talk about. Yeah, go ahead. So there's a space ripple. McCoy then injects himself with the rest of the drug. He then falls down unconscious. Everyone freaks out. He then wakes up, is immediately paranoid, and freaks out. I have an issue here, which is just recently they told us how much stronger Vulcans are than people. How in the world did McCoy shrug off Kirk, a crewman, and Spock at the same time? Because unless this drug is heroin, that's not a thing. <laughs> it's just like i don't yeah it didn't make sense to me it was kind of dumb and then the ship's response to it is also really dumb why does it take so long to turn the transporters off like he gets all the way from the bridge to the transporter room and can get onto the planet and if no one at any point has shut it off There aren't any security teams looking for him. Like, I would have sent security teams to the transporter rooms first. They would have beat him there. This would have then been the shortest episode ever because they would have knocked him unconscious and restrained him in sickbay.
0: Yeah, where he should have been.
2: And so the rest of the next 45 minutes would have been Spock having a very deep philosophical conversation with the Guardian of Forever. That's how this episode should have gone. There wouldn't have been any time travel or nothing. It would have been really boring. (laughs) Just really streamlined and a lot of talking.
0: Yeah, because Spock was generally interested in what this guardian had to say and wanted to know everything.
2: Right, and I get all that. It's just one of those things where I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. No, it, it doesn't.
0: McCoy is probably the person that, the only person on the ship that could take the, full dose of this drug and not
2: die. I'm pretty sure Spock could have taken the whole dose of the drug and been fine. He probably would have murdered several of the shipmates because he would have gone paranoid. Mm-hmm. And since he's apparently stronger than everyone, he just rips them asunder as he's running around the ship.
0: Like a phone book. Just,
2: <laughs> <"Wah!"> <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, what's that? That's half of Lieutenant Gomez. Where's the other half? We haven't found it yet. <laughs>
0: What happened? Spock, he, drugs, ripped things apart, you know, shit happened. He has
2: emotions now. He doesn't know what to do. It's I,
0: I think confars happening. I don't know.
2: Make him stop humping the wall.
0: Uh, why are there holes in the wall? It's mating season.
2: He's like a jackhammer.
1: What is <laughs> <laughs> oh god that's great oh just wait so anyway
2: until
0: you do get to the episode where he actually has to go through bar.
2: mccoy knocks out the transporter transporter technician
0: mm-hmm.
2: apparently knows how to use a transporter pad so he beams down to the planet kirk because it takes him forever to do anything they tell him hey he's beamed down to the planet Oh, okay. So then he makes a landing party. This landing party includes every senior officer except Scotty.
3: No, Scotty's there.
2: Including Need somebody to run the ship.
3: Oh, no, Scotty is there. Scotty's oh, at the Scotty landing there? party. Oh, yeah.
2: Yes. Okay, so every senior officer is there. Sulu. So who, who is Sulu left on the ship?
0: Sulu's left yes.
2: on the ship, yeah. Okay. He's still recovering. So plus, so, plus side, Uhura gets to leave the ship for once.
0: She does. Very
2: exciting. They then all beam down to the planet. They are then the worst search parties I have ever seen. Go find McCoy. There's only so many structures that they saw when they got there. So there's only so many places that he can actually be. And these people are wandering around and you can quite clearly see McCoy hiding behind a building or like a A rocky...
0: Yeah, he's hiding behind they the rock.
2: They walk right by him. They but do. They're not good search parties because instead of looking all over the place, they look straight ahead and just walk. And
0: then he <laughs> creepily just pops up from behind the rock and is like, ooh, sweaty and creepy.
2: David, I
3: know you've seen this. Okay, I'm not sure you've seen a Harry Disneyland and Pirates of the Caribbean in the five years. Yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. So they have who has not been in Pirates of the Caribbean in the last five years they have added Captain Jack Sparrow into Pirates of the Caribbean at point. Yeah, in several spots. He, 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 he's being looked for. He's hiding behind the barrel he pops up and looks around. And I'm pretty sure they got that idea from this episode because that's exactly what
0: happens.
3: <laughs> he pops is. up. I was,
0: he's Captain Jack Sparrow.
3: And he looks around. And, and yeah. And then
0: he comes back down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He I was in Dis- Disneyland in uh, February, the end of February. Oh, okay. So before the whole shit storm of Corona.
2: <laughs> yes. So for me, this is compounding the problems of the early part of the episode where yeah. people are doing very dumb things that don't make any sense, which we've gotten used to it doesn't excuse it from happening. So everyone goes to look for McCoy, except Kirk and Spock, whose only attention is looking at very fancy-looking TV monitor. I'm only saying that to, to add humor to this. I think it's actually a really cool-looking thing, especially for that time period. They just see this very, like, they figure out that's where all the time stuff is coming from. Spock and Kirk are... Very interested in it. Spock asks a question, and then you hear a big, deep voice—a question.
0: No, Kirk asks the question. Yeah, Kirk asks the question. They were like scanning the whole thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Spock was like, "Oh, that's ruins about like ten thousand centuries old." And then all of a sudden, Kirk is like, "Well, what is it?" And then the voice from the portal. So this thing is the Guardian. It calls itself the Guardian.
2: What makes this fun is the Guardian then shows them the whole amount of human history. Now, we don't get to see most of that. We get to see still stock photos or videos from, like, silent films of the 1920s of the Roman era. And I think they do some, like, Renaissance era. And then the next thing I see is, like, the Wild West.
0: They do do Um, the Wild West. And then I think they do throw in, like world war one and two footage
2: while this is happening mccoy comes out of nowhere being chased by five idiots who cannot corral him for the life of them he's calling them murderers and assassins and he's lost his goddamn mind why does his face look like he's been attacked by an octopus oh no (laughs) i was wondering that too sucker things oh i'm like i don't like are we trying to depict like are we trying to infer that if you do drugs like your skin pops out like you've been attacked by a giant no No, Um,
0: maybe he was having like an allergic reaction or something
2: then this causes this next bit causes the vulcan nerve neck pinch to be rendered completely worthless spock hits him he falls to the ground. He and Kirk keep talking. McCoy gets up immediately and jumps through the portal. I no longer believe that this will knock anyone, render anyone unconscious. You have immediately ruined it right there. Okay. Two things. First thing. This is the original
3: Stargate. Ooh. I was looking at it and I was like, that's Stargate. That's legitimately it's round. It's in the middle of story. And then I wondered um, if that's pretty I went down the dark rabbit hole. Oh, anyway, the other thing is okay, you're correct. He did pop up. He did with the Vulcan. Pitch. He didn't pop up around. There was a couple of minutes while Spock and because you know they always have to talk in order for things to fall apart. It couldn't just be like, full up. stand there and talk to each other. And then he got up and ran through the portal. But you could say because he was so hopped up on drugs and that overdose that rendered Vulcan useless on him. Because he was so filled with drugs. It's like uh, people who are on mess and you know they become like unstoppable and you literally have to put them down in order to get them to stop it's kind of the same thing you are right
2: there's also an outlining thing. so the only reason that i s- see it as diminishing of it is that and i've forgotten what the Where the reference is, but it was done later to another person that was overdosed on a various space drug. They did not get up immediately. That's where my eye came from, but I totally see what you're saying, where it's just like, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. I didn't initially think of that until I remembered the previous episode that I'd seen where someone else was drugged out of their gourd on something and they got, and then they were out until like the next day. So I was like, all right, well, but to be fair, a lot of stuff that happens in the original series, they've retconned since then. So we're both right. I
3: I take, I, I, I you're saying. I see where you... But also, let's all take into account that by the time McCoy did himself and over, he probably was like a fifth of whiskey into his day. So the drugs on top of the alcohol, that's a
0: mix, Set off a of Vulcan any day. That's in
3: your system, pumping <laughs> through your veins.
0: I was wondering about that. I was like, "How far in is he with his whiskey?" Because you really don't want to mix. You don't want to mix your your drugs and your alcohol together. Yeah, yeah. That is another reason Kirk
3: asked him if he was giving the right dose. Bones is drunk because he's oh. loaded. Come on now. The reason why Bones stabbed himself so drunk he can't stand. It. I don't care if the ship shook.
0: He was going to fall over, and drunk. Kirk was being concerned in that beginning, yes.
2: I mean, you're not wrong. This does however still doesn't solve the problem of them beaming down with such a large away team and everyone on the away team looking like complete and total imbeciles this entire time. Except for Uhura, who's doing exactly what she's supposed to do. But everybody else else, I'm just like what are you doing like you even got phasers out that are uh, presumably set to stun why did you not shoot him you're just gonna knock him unconscious you take him back to the ship done
0: have it at that but no he has to jump through the portal and fuck up the timeline great side note I have a picture of myself with the portal the little time portal thing. I will post that on our Instagram. We have an Instagram. Open underscore hailing. If you're interested (laughs) in clicky click, follow, follow. (laughs) You get to know more about us. Okay. Shameless plug over. Okay. So McCoy has gone through the portal. (laughs) He's done something bad because they can't get through to the enterprise because the enterprise is not there, but everybody in the landing party still is on the planet. Nobody's gone anywhere except for McCoy. So they ask the guardian, why, you know, that has happened. And basically McCoy has done something in the past to alter their future. Great. Kirk and Spock are like, what do we do? Can we uh, like go back? like, it's like, are we stuck here? And they ask the Guardian, can you replay all of the <laughs> human history and stuff from the beginning, like you were showing us, and then let us know like where to jump in? Because they've got to jump in at fairly the same point that McCoy did. So Spock is on his little tricorder and recording everything, and he's like, I think I have the precise moment, give or take, about a few weeks or a month. He's like, oh, that's fine. So they get ready, and they Kirk and Spock they jump through
3: before they jump through it's to the rest of the
0: uh, landing party. Landing party,
3: and tells them that if this doesn't work, they all need to if they come back in a, in a time that Scotty feels is enough time to them to what they're trying to do, then each one of the landing party in turn should also try.
0: To. That's correct. Yeah. He did say that. He did say so pick a moment in time and survive, basically.
3: Yes. Yes. Pick a moment in time and and survive. To which her response, happiness at least, sir. And um it's gonna be a bit of a rant. Be clear. what is a black woman, I don't know if you guys are, you know, your history, but there is nowhere in it where a black woman can land and be happy. Hell, you're not wrong. What? What? What what is happening? Like seriously. So she lands in the south. So she lands in um, hell. America 2020. So she lands in Africa in the 1700s. So she lands in Europe at any point in time. She lands in Asia. That's just a wrap. No place for her to go. Oh, at least, at least we can be happy. I know about 70 different people wrote this script, but they should all be slapped. Sorry, Carlin. You should all be slapped. Whoever put that line in should be slapped. Okay, that line seriously, you're going to have the, only woman, the black woman be like, no, 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 no. All the white men who are in the awaiting with her are going to be fine. No matter where they land, they be, who great. Not the black lady. Not the black. And she's also at a disadvantage, excuse me, because in her time, she's equal with the men if you grow up in a time where you are equal with everyone around you men men different nationality different race, these aliens from a different world you're all equal you have no concept so she, not only would she be going into a situation where she would already be disappointed she'd be going into it really fully comprehending. what i say she in the seventeen hundreds in the in Mississippi and somebody puts her on a plantation and what the hell's going on, at least we'll find happiness but anyway David, that was the line that I was talking
2: about. I I don't Maybe I
3: overpowered it. It's been a it's been a, it's been a hard weekend in
1: folks.
2: I don't think so. It's it's definitely I mean, like Kirk's saying it, like if we're looking at it from the time period that they're in, I understand Kirk saying it to a certain degree because in that time period, if you're black, white, whatever, as you said, everybody's equal at that time period. But it does, you know, definitely reek of white privilege because I don't like they don't specify how long that's been that way. My guess is it's probably been a couple hundred years at this point, is my guess. It's one of those things, like, if they learn history, they should know, like, this is not something that's going in a way. It's like when people debate about white privilege now, he's displaying his white privilege because he's like, oh, most of you can go wherever you want and no one's going to look twice at you. But she's not in that same boat. On a side note, I'm fairly certain... You Harlan- know, we
3: learn history because... We know they learn history because in the episode, um, Kirk spits out a historical of fact like it was on the back of his hand real easy. And I actually didn't expect that. And um, so clearly they learn history and they learn, they learn it well enough that he knew exactly what they was talking about.
2: For this ser- type of series, to me, it's a whole weird sequence. I doubt this is probably Harlan Ellison wrote this. I just don't think that's probably the case. But it's definitely one of those things where I'm like, you didn't need this. Like, there was no reason to have this. It doesn't do anything. So, yeah, I'm, I'm completely on board with you on this one. Like, it's there's just not... There's only downside to having this sequence in there, and there's no upside.
0: We have to bring up these issues, because it's like, what the fuck? Because I, I was, like, not even thinking about that. I was thinking, like, maybe she would actually be smart and choose a point in history within the 22nd, to 23rd century because Hora knows what's up it's like kidding me it's like I'm gonna pick the future as close to our time as possible
3: that oh. would make sense and being that she is the smartest person she probably would have done that. Mm-hmm. but I mean, they did talk about the history going by and them not even come really through the point they saw that might necessarily be where they came out mm-hmm. so she could have tried it been yeah. landed in a wrong spot
0: yeah that's always a concern i mean time travel we know in this series is a very tricky thing and you can't I mean she could, have in a, she could have landed in biblical times and homies with jesus oh yeah it's like I'm all down for that water and the wine thing. Let's do
1: that.
2: Well, oh, this Bible's <laughs> very different. It's twelve disciples and a and an uhura. It's a very not <laughs> Jewish name. Sure isn't. We think it's Roman.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: they're, they're around back then. Right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm. I
3: wasn't being. I wasn't trying to rude anyone. Jesus is my home. All
1: right. <laughs> All
0: right. So, you know, Kirk and Spock, of course, have to go and get McCoy. So they travel through the portal and then they end up in 1930s, you know, depression era city. Um, I don't think they ever said what city they were actually in. <laughs> but
3: uh, well, the Brooklyn Bridge.
0: There was. Oh, so they're probably somewhere in New York. Okay. Yeah.
3: I didn't. I did. I was wondering if they were gonna say what city they were in. They did a shot of probably coming out of commercial. Mm -hmm. They did a shot of. Oh, okay, so they're in New York.
2: According to Wikipedia, it is New York City.
0: Okay, that's what I thought. It had that feel. New York, 1930s, the Depression. Ooh, probably not the place I would want to be in that time too many people they just kind of appear out of nowhere from like a wall in broad daylight there are people around of course they notice them and they're like who are these weird people are those pajamas that they're wearing what is that what's up with that guy's ears a lot of questions so that alone I think would like mess up the timeline (laughs) but that's just me but they do think very quickly as to getting a, out of the area and trying to find a tire that is conducive to the time period. And Kirk notices up on a balcony clothesline, there's clothes, appear to be men's clothes. He's like, oh, I'll just go up there, I'll grab those, and everything will be fine. And he mentions something about liking the era and like how easy it is to just take stuff <laughs> and like um it's really not that easy not in that era not that period of time because people are very desperate in that time
2: <laughs> I do love that their first thought of when when arriving Kirk's first thought is we should commit crimes <laughs> yeah <laughs> we should commit crimes hey look stuff let's go take some
0: yeah that's yeah that's totally right but of course they get caught as he's coming down the fire escape uh, lovely policeman and oh no Kirk is like oh you uh, appear to be a policeman yes your uniform suggests that you're a policeman and he tries to explain himself and why he's taking the clothes and more importantly what's up with Spock so okay and this is when we get a little bit uh, racist Uh, thank you you read my mind (laughs) Kirk says, also, I would and, just like
3: to put in that he says accoutrement, I think, which I don't know what that word means, but apparently it means uniform.
0: <laughs> I think he's trying to sound... Didn't like I didn't have
3: a vocabulary, vocabulary lesson in the middle of this episode, I
0: did. We did,
3: we did. Back to the racism, Mary.
0: Okay, here we go. Here we go. I mean, this pops up in shows a lot back then. Kirk says, and you, I know you notice my friend here and how strange he looks, and obviously, he's Chinese. I'm like, okay. Honestly, the, the look on the person that's playing the cop, the look on his face is like, um, I don't think he's Chinese. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you say that? Yeah. Apparently, that explain, used to explain everything of, like, yeah. how different a person looked. If you looked different, then you must be foreign. And, of course, the cop's not buying it, and he's like, well... And he's, and he's like, oh, I see you noticed the ears. So there was an accident when he was a child. Like, he got his head stuck in a rice picker or something. And it's like, oh, my God, that is the dumbest thing anyone can say. An electronic
1: ice picker.
0: Uh-huh, yeah. Yep. I was like, I no, that doesn't fit. Not in this era. People, people, ladies and gentlemen
3: listening to this a year of of rewrites and we got a mechanical rice picker as a story behind Spock's ears. Really. Real that's what that's what we got. Amazing. Here's here here's listen. I know during that time, the Chinese thing that they used in a lot, it was a trope. It was a trope in Hollywood, in movies and in TV shows. And it's my suggestion that I'm going to make equally as bad, but at least it would have been a little not as racist. If he had said he's Japanese, considering yeah. that they have at least three Japanese crew members on their ship, could have been a little bit more, a better explanation. They have at least two female yeomans that are Japanese.
0: That, that is true, yes. They could
3: have said, he's Japanese. This was before, this was the Depression, so it would have been before World War II, with, where all the sentiment was wouldn't have been a problem. No, they go to the, the tired trope of he's Chinese, the China man, whoop-de-whoop. It work, said Oriental, which they are used in space. But yeah, I could said Japanese, it would have made more sense. It
0: would
1: have.
0: still would have been bad.
1: But oh, have yeah,
0: no doubt. It still would have been terrible. But, I mean, the 60s, they didn't think about things like that, and us yeah. we analyze all this stuff now and we're like dude oh that was so bad to say <laughs> <laughs> it's like you gotta check yourself uh, yeah so uh again we see the vulcan pinch so th- this is how they get away from the cop spock is being i think a little clever he's like oh What's that on your shoulder? Oh, how why did you leave the house looking like that? That's so late. and then just pinches the guy, he falls over. All the while while there's like about like eight other men watching all of it. I was like, "Okay. You like the show, guys? Cool." So, uh, and then they just grab all their clothes that they just stole and then they run away and then you hear cop whistles and you don't really see it, the cop like running after them, but it's insinuated. So they're just like running and running. And then they find their way, partial alleyway, and then down a flight of stairs. And they bust in through this downstairs basement, which is the basement to the 21st Street Mission, where we find Kirk and Spock need to come up with a plan. The tricorder that Spock has... It's basically it's dead and he needs some kind of power source to charge it. And Kirk, in Kirk fashion, is like, well, great, get on that. Build something. And Spock just kind of gives him this look. If Spock were to show emotions and express them verbally, I think they'd go such as this. Bitch, please, what in this century can I use to charge this motherfucking tricorder?
2: I think it would have been much simpler. It would have just been like, I'll cut you.
3: I could totally fuck. Like, at some point, a conversation happened off camera where, you know, asks Spock how he really And Spock says something like, well, sometimes you just need to slap a hoe. (laughs) And at this moment... Spock looks and said, it's time to slap a hoe. And
0: he just backhands it. I would love that. I would love that. There are several moments in this episode where Spock gets that look and I fully support the slapping. <laughs> just slapping. It's gotta happen. It's gotta happen. What is, oh, so Spock says, I think it kind of misheard it but i think he said to kirk it's like where in this zinc plated vacuum tube culture is he supposed to find things to build a charging port basically for his tricorder granted the time that they showed it showed up at not the greatest time you don't have a lot of materials because it's all going to like the war effort you barely have enough food I don't know what's around that he could use. But Spock figures it out, because he's Spock, and he can. So they're trying to figure out what to do, and I guess apparently they're making a lot of noise. So the proprietor of the establishment comes down to the basement, and here we find Edith, played by Joan Collins, face-to-face with Kirk and Spock, and the second Spock. Kirk looks at her, that cheesy I'm in love music starts playing in the background. So stupid. <sighs>
3: I would just like to say and maybe it's me, but I immediately upon Stephen Collins thought there would be a full length sequence ball gown and a swimming pool in this episode or I'm going to be upset. <laughs> now, I will say none of that is in this episode because that would have been absolutely ridiculous. But I wasn't upset about it because in the end it didn't need all of that extra stuff. Also, the other thing I'm going to say about yes, it did have the cheesy, oh my God, I love you music. First thing that it had, which I <laughs> Absolutely hate, and it's very jarring. In this episode, is the soft lighting that they put on women? They always give them an up close of their face and soft lighting that comes from the top back of their head and soft face, like, like it's a beauty filter, but in the 60s, which is by itself or if they were friends, everyone like that would be fine but if you really carefully watch this episode throughout whenever they put anybody else's face in that same close-up of just their face pretty much they only really do it with Kirk and McCoy and they do it against her so it'll be your genius, Edith's face in the soft light, and then they switch the camera so you see either McCoy or Kirk in harsh light, and it's very jarring. You're like, oh look, she's in beauty, she's got a beauty filter on, and then they switch, and you're like, oh Jesus, what happened to their face? Because they have the harsh light on them, I and mean, really need to stop. It's really, really making my viewing very difficult. <laughs> Joan London is. She doesn't need the soft filter, and if you are gonna give, the soft, just give everybody the soft filter because I don't want to see what Doris Kelly and and Shatner look like for real. Give them a beauty filter; they both need it. Jesus. Yeah.
0: Now that you mention it, you know. that is kind of <laughs> jarring.
3: It was really they did it with every love interest, yeah. but it was really it was really jarring yeah. in this episode.
0: So we figure out from Spock that they have about a week until McCoy shows up. That's going to be fun. Edith finds them in the basement. She's like, um, who are you? What are you doing here? Kind of thing, which is fine. Like you should be defensive, like somebody that just broke into your basement. then she tells them where they are. Kirk first says a lie to her, like who, who they are and why they're there. And she's quick. She's super quick. She's like, I can tell when you're lying. So you better tell me the truth. So he's like, okay, all right. Tells him his name, Spock's name, the fact that they stole the clothes and they're running from the police and they just need a place to stay because he says it's cold outside. And she's like, it's not that cold outside, but she's going to give them a chance because she runs the mission. And she's like, all right, I can't, Throw you out. These are extremely hard times. We get that in this 2020 right now. We totally get that. <laughs> so she believes that there's good in everybody and way to happiness is through like peace and whatnot. But yet she is kind of mm, her attitude is kind of harsh, a little hard at first. And she tells them, okay, you can stay, you know, here, but You know, I need work done, like cleaning and cooking and just basic stuff. And Spock, without a beat, he's like, and at what rate of payment are we going to get? For my hobby, of course, uh, that he says to Kirk because he still needs to build some kind of wacky device to charge his tricorder so they can for sure know and figure out when McCoy is supposed to show up. And I always thought... It was interesting, you know, back in the day, it's like what was considered like a living wage. But I mean, it was the Depression era, so people weren't making much of anything. And she offered them each 15 cents an hour, you know, for their work. And I'm like, okay, cool. That that seems to work. I can buy something back in the day. So they do, they basically like spit, polish, and clean the entire basement for her, and then they come upstairs and, you know, they get their meal, which is just like some bread and I think some soup or something, and they sit down at a table next to some other guy. As Edith is coming up, there's like a tiny little stage where she does some kind of like speeches or something, and the guy that's sitting next to Kirk says, now you have to listen to... To her for you know to get your supper i swear to god correct me if i'm wrong or if you guys felt this the bum said something along the lines of you know not wanting to listen to that but like he wouldn't mind showing her something else and i was like i'm assuming he's making like a sexual reference and kirk thank god shut it down like immediately he's like shut up Shut up. I want to hear what she has to say.
2: I mean, yeah, because the only one allowed to make sexual references on this show is Kirk.
0: I mean, yeah, I guess so, but...
2: He's like, oh, I didn't think of that, so you can't say that. Shut up.
0: (laughs) True. Stealing his thunder. How dare he? She gives this impassionate speech, though. uh, But she opens up with, like, I don't care if you're a bum or homeless or whatever if you can't get off the sauce then she doesn't want you there i was like oh well she's gonna have a hell of a time with mccoy then but nobody gets up and leaves obviously because she's like i guess she has a tough love approach still helps everyone which is nice especially for that moment in history you needed all the help you could get and then after like she does her speech she has a very passionate speech about the future and what she thinks that the future could be. Instead of using money and resources for war efforts and killing people, use that money to help people and let them thrive. And one day that they'll be able to travel to the stars. And man will have created some kind of high tech devices. And and then Spock leans over. It's like wow. Uh, either she's like just really smart or clairvoyant or something, because it's only a few years off from when the A-bomb gets developed and then like a few other decades later, like all these other things that she was talking about is starting to happen. That doesn't get seen until much later. And it intrigues Kirk and kind of intrigues Spock, but of course, intrigues Kirk more because of course he's in love with her smack that guy outside the head again. So after she's done doing her little speech, Kurt goes up to her and says, oh, I, I liked your speech. I thought it was very poignant. And like, do you believe all that stuff? And she's like, yeah, of course I do. It's like, why wouldn't I? Because she wants hope for the future. And they just He just looks at her all longingly again, and he's like, wow, she's so great. I love her. And then she asks him if he has a flop for the night, which he's like, a what? I don't understand this terminology. She's just asking him if he has a place to sleep. And, of course, he says no. And she's like, "That no matter. That's okay. The building that she lives in, they rent out rooms for, like, $2 a week. like, could you imagine? You can't get anything for $2 a week here in the future. Back then, I'm sure that was a lot of money to spend on renting a room. I find it interesting what $2 could get you back in the day.
3: It It was a lot of money, but considering the time period, it probably was also, I'm sorry, it was not a lot of money by today's standards, but back during the Depression, it was probably a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, probably was. It probably really was a lot of money. Oh yeah. Um, but like, yeah, you can't, you can't get anything. You can barely get anything for two dollars. Just to like eat.
0: Nope. I remember a story. You can get a coffee. Two dollars for? Well, yeah, you can probably get a coffee for that. I remember my dad telling me a story when he was newly divorced from his first wife in the seventies. He had a studio apartment. That he shared with like two other guys, and they paid $75 a month. Granted, he worked yes. at like Sears or something where he was only making like $4 an hour, but still, $75 yeah. a month for an apartment. <laughs> but I digress. So they got a flap. They got a flap for however long that they're there. And Spock is doing his due diligence and trying to build something in order to get the tricorder powered back up so you just see all these kind of not circuit boards but just like boards and like these rabbit ears and some like tubing and light bulbs and all this stuff put together sending off little little sparks and whatnot it's not working it's not charging the way that he needs it to and then kirk comes back into the room with groceries and spock is like i can't I can't make anything out of this material. I need, you know, like platinum or gold or some kind of like precious metal. Laughed out loud. Laughed out like, Yeah. She's like, I need these things. I can't work with this primitive stuff. And Kirk just. I need platinum. (laughs) Platinum. No way. You ain't finding that. Not in the thirties depression in new york you're not finding that and kirk is like no i understand your frustration look out the windows fog and look them we'll we that amount too much money yeah it's like they make 15 cents an hour right now he spent half of both their combined income on just the groceries one sack of groceries and he got him a couple of like little things that he needed for his little experiment there and their money's exhausted it's gone Kirk's like, I don't know where you think I am going to get you platinum. It ain't happening. You have to figure something else out. Be creative. Be the Spock that I know you are, which I don't fault him for saying that, for thinking that or saying that because like you've got to work with what you've got. Like We can't just go somewhere and steal platinum because it's probably not there. So then Edith uh, knocks on the door, kind of partially comes in sees that little device and she's like thinking there was something like what is that Bach says that it's just you know uh not it's not it's really not of importance he says what it is but it doesn't compute to her and she's like okay whatever i i don't care what it is all she did is she was coming there to inform both of them that she found them a job that will pay them 22 cents an hour la-di-da so if they act now they can get that job make a little extra because everybody needs it back then so then cut to a scene where they're cleaning up i believe they're, they're still in the mission so they're cleaning up in the mission and they notice these two guys working on clocks and they have these fine precision tools uh, which spock needs for his little experiment and they decide to steal them so these tools are actually in a box locked with a combination lock which they manage of course to easily undo and get the stuff and then cut to very angry edith She confronts them about the missing tools she's like how did you do it i'm at this point i think she's thinking that they're like jewel thieves or something because at that time, it probably was really difficult to try and do the crack a combination on that, but not so much any anymore, because it was like those basic locks that I remember getting for my lockers back in you know junior high. S- simple combination locks. And with a pair of like shears, you can just cut that shit right off. Easy peasy. She's really angry and upset about the theft, granted, but then. Kirk, with his Kirk-like whimsy or something, manages to turn the situation around and have her trust them. He says, if Spock says he only needs it for a day, he only needs it for a day, and he'll give it back. And then she's just like, oh, okay, sounds good. Want to walk me home?
1: I know, I know. Uh,
2: it's, what it's, makes
0: know. It's, it's, uh, what makes women trust him?
3: Um what makes women trust him? I don't know. She neither do mention, I.
0: I just I don't understand it. I don't understand. She did mention like uh, the relationship between Kirk and Spock and how it felt you know, like she felt like Kirk was a leader of some kind and Spock was like his follower. And I mean not like in a culty way, but you know, like a military way, like
3: that's a cult. No, it's a cult. He, well, no, it's a cult. <laughs> it's a cult. <laughs>
0: And she he doesn't say Spock doesn't call him Captain, just responds to him like he normally would, and then Edith is like, Captain. She says it. She's like, I can I can sense it. I know that's what you were gonna say. Because that's how you both act.
2: I'm very excited that she that it's been revealed that she is now psychic.
0: Right? Yeah. Cause she's already predicting like the A-bomb and stuff and spaceships and Shit and traveling up into the stars, and they're like, "How the hell did she know all that already?"
3: She's got the gift. She's got the
2: gift. She's part of the body.
0: oh fuck! <laughs> no, 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 She's smitten with him. She is very smitten. She's a smitten kitten. So he does offer to walk do her something. home. Something, yeah. You get this scene where they do walk home, and he tries to hold her hand, and felt very cute and like lovey. And they talk about this stuff, and he's mentioning planets up in the sky, and a future writer talks talking about space and shit this takes me back this takes me
3: back to that episode that we all hated which was like tomorrow will never die and we're here and we're all stupid um i don't know what the name of the episode was but it was one when they went back into the future and they had to slingshot around the sun to get back to the present
0: oh yeah that tomorrow is crappy yesterday? episode
3: Yeah, Yeah, yesterday is tomorrow, tomorrow is yesterday, and y'all don't pay me enough to watch this episode. Listen, I think my biggest gripe with this crew will always be that they don't learn anything. They don't learn anything from their previous experiences that they've had. Mm -hmm. This is the second time since I started watching. It could have happened before I started watching, but I I don't remember. This is the second time since i started watching they've gone back in time. Yes. The first time they had to save themselves because they jacked everything up. And they told not one, but two people about the future. And then they had to fix it. At this point, they don't know what's going to happen in the future. They don't know what's gonna happen if they're gonna get McCoy back, how they're gonna stop be able to stop McCoy from coming to you know, mess up whatever he messed up in the timeline. At this point, they frankly don't even know if McCoy's going to show up in New York where they are. They have no idea what's happening. They haven't come to that yet. But here is Kirk, again, telling someone in the past about things that are going to happen in the future. Like he didn't just have this experience 10 episodes ago. What was he gonna do? Take her back to the future with him? Or was he just gonna go back to the future and leave this woman in the past with all this knowledge of the things that were gonna happen in the future so that she can go off and run her mouth? Like what? I know that the man doesn't think. I understand that. But what was he gonna accomplish? Was this his way of wooing her? Woo woo woo, woo 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 I'm gonna woo you by telling you that you're right about the future? Like that doesn't make any sense.
1: It really I doesn't make any sense.
3: I really, really need them to start learning from the experiences that they've had before because it doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah,
0: it's I stupid. totally think that he was just saying all that stuff to woo her. You're right. I, you're totally right on that. It's Kirk.
3: <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> Even he is. He's just
0: thinking just about himself.
2: Listen, this is this is what he's thinking. It has been several episodes since any woman has looked at me because she wants me. I'm going to force the rule here and I'm going to use my tried and true technique of telling the woman about futuristic events that haven't happened because it'll make me look cooler.
0: (laughs) Y'all know he likes to look cool. Uh, Yeah, this is, it just gets weird. He's just so bad. So, so dumb. Yeah. So after that lovely little walk moment, McCoy shows up somewhere in the same city, but he shows up at night screaming murderers, assassins, and then he sees this homeless dude with the bottle of milk. (laughs) He, so, (laughs) it's so funny. When he... (laughs) (laughs)
3: You see him coming through the Stargate onto the street. The way it was filmed, he actually was already there. So he takes a step before he does his leap. But that's not the funny part. The part that tickled my chucklebone is how graceful his leap was. It was, go back and watch it. It was so un-McCoy it was like he was became a dancer for a split second it was kind of lovely but also hilarious (laughs) absolutely hilarious
0: it was pretty but
3: still I appreciated what they were trying to do if they had started recording like a or if they had cut it so that the edit was a split second later you wouldn't have seen the step that he had to take before the leap and it would have looked like he just leapt out of thin air, which would have been flawless. But the step adds to the leap. But which is surprising <laughs> because he's so drunk. Like how he's so high and so oh, drunk. How high. did he leap like that?
0: He is high as a motherfucker. <laughs> All that drugs in his system, he should have died instantly, but I digress on that. So, beautiful entrance of McCoy. He sees this homeless person and just starts going like, "You. You know answers. You can tell me where I am." And he runs at him and granted the guy is like, "Okay, this guy is nuts." Absolutely nuts. And like, I, I may be nuts at sometimes, but I am not as nuts as this guy right now. And he runs away, but McCoy catches up to him and is just talking nonsense just absolute nonsense and mccoy is very um convinced that it's all kind of like a hallucination or a very elaborate setup of some kind and say are you human are, th- this is an alien culture it's the, how how did you get all of this right so it's like this looks like earth you look like a human and then oh my god then he grabs the guy by the head and he's like, cranial plating seems to be that of, you know, this era. And I was like, oh my God, get your nasty clammy hands off him. And then he just starts talking about like, I wonder what the hospitals look like, and then he starts getting really depressed about it. And he just starts, you know, going downhill from there and passes out. That's the point where I thought, okay, now he's dead. But no, no, he's not.
3: He can't. One thing about his, his rant right here is I actually thought it was an interesting character moment giving a little bit more background. If we think back to Space Seed, he has in the medical bay old 23rd century old-timey medical devices hanging on the wall. And here he says he wants to know what the hospitals look like. And then he starts talking about suturing people up, like their pieces of clothing and yada, yada, yada. So to me, this tells me that he, in fact, is some kind of medical historian. That is something that he has an interest in, Mm -hmm. which is a good character-like development you know it would give him much but they've they've given him that which i've i found
0: you know kind of pleasant yeah you need little things like that for your character because that's a part of developing your your character it's all these like little nuances it's like yeah why why would he have that antique medical equipment if he wasn't interested in the entire earth's history of how medicine worked you know, back in the day, which I do believe in the next couple of seasons, we do get other medical-ish type episodes where he deals with futuristic stuff and then more ancient ways, you know, like herbs and things. So that'll be interesting for the next, next season. So when McCoy did pass out, the homeless man did pat him down, see if he had any money, but he took his phaser And then pressed the button and just held it, apparently, and then that vaporized him. I don't think that particular part was necessary, because nobody brings it up in the rest of the episode.
2: It was violence for the sake of violence. Was it? It was, he's unconscious, this homeless person is obviously going to try and find anything on him that might be worth money. Now that may or may not be true he does and they're like well how do we write ourselves out of this problem because we don't have enough time to go chase down the homeless man and take our stuff back oh we'll just have him kill himself my thing is okay but now you're changing the timeline again because just because he's homeless doesn't mean that there wasn't something down the line that he or his family did that would require him to be alive So to me, that's just them ignoring what the whole premise of this episode is.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's a good point. That is a very good point. But we just, we brush it off because like you said, there's no time. And from all the stuff that you said in the beginning, they really didn't have any time or budget to do any kind of a B plot storyline. Or in this case, probably C. We do cut to Bach's in the room that they're renting and he has managed to build even more to his little machine and he does get the tricorder partially charged enough to where he sees a newspaper article about edith saying that she's been killed in an automobile accident and then the whole thing just kind of blows up and then kirk comes in and like oh i have some information but let me try and fix the machine because he needs more obviously they do get it working again and then there's this separate article saying that edith like six years later edith meets the president and she becomes this ambassador for this peace project and establishes peace in america but that is what drives America not not to make the A-bomb. So Germany beats them to making it in this scenario. And then Germany takes over, which is why the timeline got screwed up because now they're figuring, okay, well, Spock is figuring McCoy came back and he saved Edith from dying. So then this alternate future happens. So Spock is trying to tell Kirk In the most gentle Vulcan way he can, that Edith can't live. She is destined to die if the timeline is to go back to its original state. And Kirk doesn't want to accept that right off the bat. And he tells Spock, But I love her. And this is another moment where Spock gets that look on his face, basically saying, I don't care if you love her the timeline needs to be fixed. There are thousands and thousands of people that are affected by this, which the quote that Spock says in Wrath of Khan, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, which is very true in this case. It's like, what do you do? Do you want no future for America and like America to get invaded? Or do you want Starfleet to naturally progress and, we slowly get towards this idea of peace that edith was talking about she like had the right idea but just in the wrong century therefore sadly she has to i die. thought i thought this was interesting because for me
3: and correct me if i'm wrong this is the first time that and i'll give credit to much as it pains me he delivered the i love her line He delivered it in a way that would garner as much sympathy as he could, because when he said it, I actually felt bad for him. And it, to me, it's like the first time he's actually said that. So it wasn't being in that it was the first time he's actually said that. And the way he said it, this was not just another fling, another person, another woman he was trying to take to bed. This was actually somebody that he was invested in. Which made the next, the rest of the episode, I think kind of dreadful and not dreadful like it was bad, but you're dreading what's going to happen because you know ultimately that this man is going to have his heart broken. Mm -hmm. But it's also suspenseful because you really don't know what he's going to do. You don't know if he's going to save her or let her die. But I found that just in the way he presented that line really made me feel bad
1: for him.
0: He did a good job, I think, overall, in this episode, the acting in love and the consequences afterwards. I think it was he, his performance was really great. I, I will give him that. Tattoo McCoy manages to wake his ass up and he's stumbling around the city and he manages to find his way to the mission where he meets edith he stumbles on in and mentions to her oh that coffee smells really good and is about ready to pass out again but she grabs him and takes him into the back where there's a cot for him to lie down and she's presuming that he's just drunk (laughs) <laughs> McCoy drunk no way so she offers him a little place to sleep it off I believe he's there for I want to say he's only there for like about a day or so and he manages to you know come out of the drug-induced crazies he's starting to look a little bit better and she comes in and you know is making sure he's okay and he's still not believing where he's at and he said, either, you know, like I'm demented or I'm dead or something. I was like, no, you're fine. And then he starts looking around and he says, oh, this is about like 1925 Earth or whatever. And she's like, KF30, it's 1930. And he's like, oh, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. Because I'm demented at this point. I don't believe anything that I'm seeing or hearing or listening to. Because he's still trying to wean himself off the drugs, I think.
3: What he should have said is, I'm very drunk right now. Because he was (laughs) no longer high. He wasn't demented. But he was still drunk. I guarantee that.
0: Oh, guarantee. Did you guys feel that once he got even better and was managing to stand up on his own, that he was a little infatuated with her as well.
2: No, I just think he was being his own, doing his own thing, because I think he was still trying to deal with all the changes going on around him, because he's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't, how did I get here? What's going on? So yeah, I just don't think that that ever entered into his mind, at least not as a serious thought. I do.
0: I do. You're on my wavelength. <laughs> no um, you are I love it i I don't know I, just, I I felt like that was happening but they didn't have time to have a conversation long enough to develop more of relationshipy things and feelings so we don't have time for that. we only have time for Kirk's feelings but she um does try and give him a newspaper and be like, hey, do you want to read the newspaper He's like no no that's okay i I don't need to. Read about the past. He thanks her for her help and he's offering his services if there's anything that he can do around. And she's like, No, um, not that I can think of because I already have people that are doing that and I can't stay long. Just want to check on you. My man and I are he's taking me to the next Clark Gable movie. And McCoy's like, Who? (laughs) It's like Clark Gable, come on damn it, people should know this shit. And she's like, well, Clark Gable, oh, don't you know anything? It's like, no, no, he doesn't.
3: No, he doesn't, because he's an idiot. But, I mean, there are a lot of stars. I guarantee if you went up to someone who was under 25, they probably wouldn't know who Clark Gable was.
0: Well, that's true.
3: So... somebody in the 23rd century and he did say i know what movies are i just don't know who he is right so yeah that was understandable like for us of course we're like (gasps) you don't know who clark gable is but no of course he wouldn't know who clark gable was and if he did it would be a passing knowledge it wouldn't be like he wouldn't
0: be able to name a movie that he said no, that's, that's true. That's very true. I keep forgetting those things, you know, it's like the stuff that I know. Not a lot of people know or care about, and that's okay. That's all right.
2: To, to be fair, I don't actually care about Clark Gable movies.
0: But you know who he is.
2: Unfortunately. <laughs> well, you,
3: yeah, we're going to have to have a discussion after we finish.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm just gonna say, it. I'm just gonna say it now. Uh, Gone with the Wind might be the most overrated movie in the history of cinema. Just, say saying. Oh,
3: nobody's gonna argue with that.
2: That's not true. But it's so not many his fault. Argue. It is his fault. It's He's his terrible fault. in it. What?
3: The whole movie is bloated. <laughs> anyway, we're <off> all <laughs> popping out.
0: That's all good. Oh, that's subject for another podcast. <laughs>
2: Welcome to our new podcast, Is Gone with the Wind Good or Not? Over the next 52 weeks, we will dissect each individual moment because 52 weeks is how long it will take us to watch that goddamn movie. (laughs)
3: Listen, all I'm going to say is this about the wind, and it actually has nothing to do with Gone with the Wind. If it wasn't for Gone with the Wind, we wouldn't know who Vivian Lee was. Vivian Lee in turn, wouldn't have married Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis and Vivian Lee, in turn, wouldn't have had Jamie Lee Curtis. And she wouldn't be the star of one of my all-time favorite movies and the original Scream Queen in Halloween. Okay? Mm -hmm. A movie that fostered, basically, the entire industry. So, what I'm saying is, Gone with the Win at least gave us one thing. Oh, actually gave us two things because also Hattie McDaniels was the first black person to win an Oscar. I mean she wasn't allowed to go because she was black, but she won an Oscar.
0: She did. She did. There is footage that is out there of her accepting it. But yes, that is true.
3: Yeah, but she wasn't she wasn't allowed to go to the like no. they did present it to her.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: One one slight correction. Don't
3: wag your finger at me.
2: Uh, <laughs> Vivian Lee didn't marry Tony Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis's mom is Janet Lee. Oh, that.
3: Sorry, So wrong not Yeah, I wasn't.
2: Yeah, I, wasn't I wasn't trying to correct you. I had you a whole impact. You could have
3: let me have that. You could have let me have that. Oh, and now you mute. You mute. You, you mute your mic. Like, you know what? This is.
2: Hello, I everyone. Let, I could have let you have it. This last I podcast.
3: You- I can't work with it anymore. <laughs> I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna close this session down and book a flight <laughs> to Washington. And um, you won't you won't get from David either. It'll just be Carrie by herself. Um, because they won't be here and I'll be in jail. And uh, good luck, Carrie. Oh, they might let you do and, the and podcasting, podcasting by yourself. <laughs>
2: so is this a no they might for let 52... me do
3: the podcast in jail
2: so is this a no for a 52 what? week gone with the wind podcast
3: 52 weeks jesus christ Ooh. i mean it's long <laughs> enough we could probably that off.
0: we could we could but no Mm-mm. all right so wh- we're in hand
3: go back to joan collins and the drunk doctor
0: oh joan so i mean that that's over then she's off on her merry way and to meet up with uh, Kirk, obviously, and I think I'm speeding up. I, I might have missed missed a part where she almost took a tumble down the stairs and Kirk caught her and Spock was like, uh, you could have let her fall. That could have been the moment that she was supposed to die. FYI, timeline and everything I was like, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. Got to wait, got to savor the moment. He's trying really hard. I, he knows he has to fix the timeline, but he doesn't want to, obviously, because he's in love and all that stuff. So, fast forward a little bit. They are leaving the uh, mission and they cross the street, and there's, you know, cars aren't paying attention and they stop and honking at them And across the street, she's talking about the Clark Gable movie. And Kirk was like, Who? And she's like, You sound just like McCoy. And Kirk is like, McCoy. Leonard McCoy, is that who you're talking about? He's like, well, yeah. He's like, where is he? And then he's he's like, stay here. Don't move from this spot. Do not move from this spot. And he runs across the street, yelling for Spock. And then a split second later, McCoy comes out of the mission. And they're like, whoa, there you are. We found you. And they're hugging and stuff. And
1: Edith. The most
3: awkward man hug. Oh. Whew so awkward. That was, I think the timing on that was, was all wrong. <laughs> it doesn't, it,
0: yeah, I mean, yeah.
3: That
1: oh, was all
0: wrong. It was bad. That timing was all wrong. So Edith uh, is like, oh, how do they know each other? And she just starts walking across the street, you know, deadpan just staring straight at them, not looking around where anybody's coming from. Car comes out of nowhere, and McCoy sees it, and he uh, tries to lunge at her to like push her out of the way or something, but Kirk grabs him and pulls him back, and the car hits her, killing her instantly, apparently. And the interaction between Kirk and McCoy, you can just feel like all the emotions. Like Kirk knew it was gonna, he, he heard it, he heard the car hit her, and he's like still holding on to McCoy. But he's got his eyes shut really tight and he's, you know, turned away from the scene and McCoy is looking at it and he's like, why did you stop me? I could have saved her. And Spock says he knows this had to happen. And then that is basically the end of the episode. So the timeline, as soon as she gets hit and dies, the timeline resets itself and they are seen popping through the portal again where Scotty says that they've only been gone for like a few moments, lucky for them and then the look on Kirk's face of like utter depression and sadness just really says it all, he's just like let's just get the hell out of here and get back up to the ship, I can't deal with this anymore and so they do and that is the end of the episode All right. so final thoughts, David you want to start us
2: off? There's a lot to like about this episode overall. I think the performances are fine. I do think that there's definitely the deficiencies that you see in a lot of episodes, which is it's all about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Everyone else is just kind of window dressing as far as the crew goes. I personally am also surprised Joan Collins said yes to this because she's barely in it. And she doesn't have a ton to do, but she makes the most of what she has. Her chemistry with Shatner is fine. You know, they, they play off each other rather well. The big thing that I am going to hold against this episode is there is too much humor in it. And for me, it actually breaks the episode apart and it, it doesn't bridge it well enough because it's put in spots that I find are unnecessary There's humor at the beginning, there's humor in the middle, there's humor here and here. You know, Spock's interactions with the homeless dude are very over the top and quite humorous, but I'm just like, that's not really how that's gonna go down though. They tried to be hyper-realistic in a lot of the other interactions, but with that one, they're like, no, no, we're gonna make this funny. No, if you see a deranged man coming after you, you would run away and you wouldn't talk to him. So any of that interaction wouldn't happen. So for me, like, I totally get the excitement about this episode. I totally get the classic feel of this episode because it's got all those things. It's got a certain quality level that I feel a lot of episodes in this first season is lacking. The extra, like when we were talking about how the episode went over budget, I can see the the extra budget. Like they definitely, it shows up on the screen, but I feel like there's more that could have been done. I'm going to give this an eight and a half. The performances are good. There's not enough for Joan Collins to do, but she's fine, you know. And so the performances are good. They do what they can with the stuff that they've been given. But I do feel like there's more that they could have done.
0: That's a good score, Uh, Melanie. What are your thoughts? Um,
3: I I liked this episode. I did. The only thing that I really didn't like about the episode, besides the lighting on. Joan Collins, and then it's switching from the soft lighting to the harsher lighting. The only other thing I didn't like was the beginning of it, and they tend to do this with more kind of epic episodes. The beginning and the rest of the episode don't fit together. It's like a mismatched puzzle piece. They do the beginning to get to where they want to be, but the beginning is so forgettable. It doesn't even feel like it belongs with the rest of the episode. So, by the end of the episode, you f- have forgotten what happened on the bridge. You forgot about Zulu. You re- you have really forgotten why they were down on the planet to get with, and the fact that okay, oh OD'd on this drug and beamed himself down, and they went to look for him, and then he jumped through the Stargate. Because the rest of the episode was so dynamic in its own way that the beginning part is just it's like there were two separate episodes and knowing what we now know about the writing it could very well have been two separate episodes that they just kind of mushed together to save it the other another thing that I didn't really like about it was force Kelly you guys might disagree with me but and this is not because I don't like Dr. McCoy which we all know I don't but I really feel like he kind of overplayed the crazy it was a little wild it was a little too much i feel like he could have brought it back just a little bit but that's me personally i like that uhura went down on the away team but they could have given her more than like two lines you know it's i did like the episode i once they were through the portal um everything that happened in the episode was that joan collins costume was good the costume was good on every on everyone. Once they were in New York in the depression, I think it did a really good job on the sets once they were in that part. I liked it. I'd watch it. I mean, I watched it twice, I'd watch it again. I can see why this is on the top of so many all of best of all time lists. I still don't think it's the best of all time because you know I'm partial to DG, so the episode I think is the best of all time is, that's for me, but all lists are
0: subject to the person writes them. Um, anyway, I would give this a nine. Those are some good scores. I mean, this is a very iconic episode. A lot of people know it. A lot of people love it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I've seen it many times before. I mean, I used to poke fun at the whole Kirk being in love thing in this episode, but I understand it more now that when you, as you watch it as, as an adult, you start to pick up on everything and understand things a little bit better. And I I mean, I could have done without like the racist comments, but you know, it was the sixties and the whole information that we gave you at the beginning of the episode of just the whole kerfuffle. I mean, that was, that must have sucked. But overall, I enjoyed the episode and I do kind of, I agree with Mel that McCoy's drug-induced craziness could have been dialed down just a bit because we just don't know um, this drug, what it actually is meant to do. And if you do take too much of it, is that really what's going to happen? I don't know. Joan Collins was amazing. She may not have been in it for very long, but I think she was in it long enough to develop storyline with her and Kirk and everything and how the future got all messed up. There could have been more but I know they were probably pressed for time and things were just going wrong all the time with this episode, but they did what they could and they all did a really good job acting wise, I think. And I would give this probably about an eight and a half. I think this episode is, can stand the test of time. No pun intended. All right. uh, That will wrap up this latest episode. We have one more episode left in season one. And that one will go to you,
1: David.
2: Oh, goody. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen the next episode already. And y- yeah, that's all I have to say for right now. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> Until next time, keep your hailing frequencies open and we will see you again. Good night. Bye.